KFBS. Sit Rap with Christopher Lee. And thank you, Adam Gilchrist, for the news there. Scottish Fish Shops, number one. Didn't we know it already? Hello again. Welcome to Sit Rep, your defence and global affairs magazine from BFPS Radio 2 in the next 57 minutes. Why MI6 turned its back on real intelligence? Should we be singing Happy Birthday, Mr President? And why next week's Afghan summit is part of the United Kingdom election campaign? Why it's been no show for the Royal Navy in Haiti? And does it matter why the RAF and the Royal Navy are ganging up on the army? And who will win? Why Putin thinks he's back to winner? And are our leaders any good? Have they ever been? And when is a gerbil? When is a gerbil? Not a stoat. Yes, it's another Sarah Palin moment in 55 minutes from now. Well, we start with the official inquiry into why we went into uh, Iraq and what happened when we got there. It's still going on. We've had the former Defence Secretary, Jeff Hoon, in the chair, and Sir David Omand, the Intelligence Director. And as we speak, the Foreign Secretary at the time, Jack Straw, is facing questions from Sir John uh, Chilcott and his team at Westminster. Watching... The BBC World Service political correspondent, Rob Watson. Um, Rob, can we go back just a couple of them? Uh, Tuesday, Jeff Hoon, what he said about Afghanistan, um, sort of, he said he wasn't in favour of two wars. No, and that that had been the concern of, of the military and that that was the advice that he had fed through to the Prime Minister, the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, that really if you wanted to go into Afghanistan in larger numbers, you needed to come down in numbers in Iraq. And that, of course, was an answer to a question about what had been the criteria that Britain had used for the troop withdrawals that it made in Iraq after the invasion. And he's also making a point that the United Kingdom policy on Iraq seemed to be there was an inherent assumption, I think he described it, that it would take part in military action come what may. And he said that was wrong. Yes. Uh, he, he, he had indicated in, in his evidence that that didn't seem to be the line that he had been particularly willing to go down and that, of course, the preference of UK policy had been that the going down the UN route would have led to disarmament without the use of force. What about um, equipment? I mean, somebody said to him, look, um, what about all the, the problems about funding and helicopter numbers, etc.? And he said, well, yeah, all right, that was true, but we did have basic equipment. Yes, and and by and large, he didn't stick the boot in on the then-Chancellor and current Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, as, as of course, you wouldn't be surprised to know all of us journalists were watching and waiting to see what he he kind of stick the knife in. What he said was that basically all the kind of things that were urgently needed, these urgent operational requests that were sent to the Treasury, he, he didn't have many complaints. But, and there is, of course, a big but here, two big buts, one is, he, he did tell the inquiry about the, the general sense at the Ministry of Defence that, 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 the, that the military were underfunded in, in that whole, throughout that whole period, or I should say going into that period, so it wasn't in a great position. And he made another but as well, and, and that but was that the Prime Minister's desire... Uh, to keep the preparations for war secret meant that there were lots of things that, that you couldn't do. You couldn't start, for example, going to order this enhanced body armour, which, of course, has become a very contentious issue because, well, even the dimmest amongst us journalists would have probably figured out that something was going on. <laughs> yes, probably need it for the newsrooms. Um, isn't it Sir David Omand? Now, he's not a household name, but a very, very top guy at the time. He was... I mean, the shorthand would be chief of uh, security and intelligence operations. Fascinating. He said <clears throat> something on, on the way that if you had new information, if you had um, some intelligence which said, look, 
the Prime Minister, this, this, this is not what you think it is, and perhaps we ought to have a rethink. There was no way he could get that information into the system. Yes, and I suspect that that's one of the things that will come out of this inquiry and indeed out of the, the Butler and other reports that perhaps some of these methods, these processes by which you know, government and intelligence relate together will need to be re-looked at. I should say, though, that in broad terms, of course, what was seized on in, in David Oman's testimony was that, that the idea of saying 45 minutes was a something which was a bit of a blunder and, and could have been looked at. But it, This but, was the idea that, that Saddam Hussein's army could actually make ready within 45 minutes weapon systems. Yes, and, and it has to be said that David Oman, you perhaps wouldn't be surprised to hear this, he, I mean, he gave the impression of being rather squeamish about this whole idea of, of putting intelligence in, into the public domain, and, and of course that is a big, big theme that we've got throughout this inquiry. I was watching uh, Jack Straw earlier... Uh, for coming down to the studio. It, fascinating. I mean, it's almost as if they're giving him an easy ride. Well, it's all very clubbable, isn't it? And obviously Jack Straw knows some of the uh, committee members. Well, I think he probably knows all of them pretty well. Uh, if you want a, a quick summation of Jack Straw's evidence, I'd put it this way, and I, I think it has been quite interesting because in a broader sense... His testimony is the broader defence that the entire government puts through of um, puts forward for for what happened in in two thousand and three, the events leading up to essentially what Jack Straw was telling the inquiry. Well, I should I should remind people he was foreign secretary at the time. Yeah, from two thousand one to two thousand and six, and and to sum it up, what, you know what he was saying in, in this rather kind of clubbable and friendly way was, look, here's the deal, you know, cast your mind back to two thousand and one a government had won in the United States that wasn't really quite our cup of tea. You know, President Bush and the neocons, not really our kind of crowd. So that's point number one. Point number two, 9-11 comes along. Of course, not our fault. Th these are the factors that we have to deal with. Now, from that point on, he's saying, look, we had to get on with the United States government. We had to take into account that everything had changed as a result of 9-11 and therefore our policy was to try and get the United States to go down at least a road that we would be comfortable with. Now that primarily as a reference to the whole United Nations approach. And, and then he says, you know, in, in summation, look, now whether you think that we were right to do that, we did it in good faith, we did it with the, you know, with the best of our skills and that he stands by the decision even though it had been very tough. So you see what I mean? His defence mm. of the government is, look, you know, that's the way the world was. The UK needs to be close to the US. The current US government, not our cup of tea. 9-11, not our fault. But hey, look, the world has changed and we did our best. Yeah. Tony Blair, uh, tomorrow week. I um, mean, this is... still get this sense this is what it's been all about, waiting for, waiting for Tony. Well, I mean, unlike Goddard, he will turn up. <laughs> well, I can tell you the media and, and all the BBC and other organisations who've made extensive plans for covering it would be pretty disappointed if he doesn't. But no, absolutely. I, I think it's true that the, um, that, the, that the inquiry has been building up to this. But I'd say something else. I think it's not entirely clear what this inquiry is about. Is it about holding these people to account in public? Well, to judge from the way they've been questioned, maybe not. Or is it about a kind of careful listening to all the evidence, including from Tony Blair, and then coming to write a report which which sort of tries to look at the extent to which what they've said in evidence m matches with the events that actually happened at the time? And also the documentation which they've got, a lot of it classified, certainly hasn't been out yet. Um, you start comparing, this man said so-and-so. 
Yes, because that's not something... That, that's what I mean about the, the two different approaches they could be trying at this inquiry. You know, is it, you know, is it to try and really have a go at these people in public? Well, probably not, to judge from what we've seen. Or, or, or is it about trying to kind of find out, to, to, to see whether there are any differences in what people have said now with what actually happened at the time? Because certainly, you know, they haven't been actually putting documentation to people and saying, aha, but you said in this memo of whatever date, this, that, and the other. They haven't really been doing that. It's been far more gentle. Yeah, you could be around next week. I hope so. We must talk. OK, yeah. Rob Watson, thank you very much indeed. Well, with me at the Sit Rep Round uh, Table, the Director of the Military Sciences Programme at the Royal United Services Institute, Michael Cotner, the Senior Correspondent of Global Radio News, Christopher Walker, and the former Kremlin Policy Advisor, Alexander Nekrasov, who also is editor-in-chief of the political uh, satire blog. Is that blog? Is that fair website, to call it? Website. 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 <laughs> website. Uh, it's getting market all the time. I'm not sure you should be on. Um, it's a political satire website. Yes. Have you been doing stuff on, on, on this inquiry? Well, we've been mocking it, obviously, because it's... Um, I agree with Rob. We don't really understand what, what, where it's leading... Uh, you, you made your point at, uh, previously at one previous program uh, saying that you know, for outsiders it's probably interesting to understand what was going on. But when we've heard Jeff Hoon saying, military intelligence about Iraq, who cares? We didn't pay any attention. I mean, come on. <laughs> or the defense secretary saying, oh, yes, there was something, but I wasn't there. I was in Kiev. At the time, I didn't really read anything. I didn't... <laughs> Excuse me, what is happening? Mm. So it's, it's becoming really a subject for our website, you know, <laughs> rather than... Yes, it's satire <laughs> rather than... Uh, yes. Um, Michael Codney, you, you, you um, as uh, at the RUSI, have a totally different view of this, don't you? Because in, in some senses, you know, or your organisation knows, but this is for the public, isn't it? People who don't know the background... Well, I'd certainly say that the char- you can characterise the uh, review uh, the, um, very much uh, as um, a group of historians, and of course there are two uh, of our leading historians there, uh, just merely surveying the oral history and then putting that alongside the documentation to come up with a definitive history, which you'll never be able to do in such a short timescale. But nonetheless, uh, that seems to be the way it's going, rather than the legal uh, combative mm. approach. Which um, Is which it important? Um, certainly from um, our viewpoint, we want to know what actually happened as much as possible rather than put people um, on the stand um, and, and um, politicise it in that sort of way. Uh, so far, what um, has come out of it just merely confirms uh, our presumptions, to be honest. And what was said earlier about Jeff Hoon was exactly the sort of narrative that, um, that I had put and mm. thought was what was going on at the time. Yes, and sometimes I got the impression from Jeff Hoon evidence, this is unfair probably, but that he popped in to the, to the whole thing, um, that he didn't always know what was going on because it wasn't necessary for him to know what was going on. Well, uh, that's certainly a approach of a type of defence minister in these situations. Once we've decided to go to war, it becomes my problem. But until then, it's a matter for prime ministers and foreign secretaries. That's a very British sort of way of looking yes. at it. Christopher Walker, what have you made of it thus far? Well, <clears throat> well, I think passing it the other day, what interests me most was they were getting ready with crowd barriers outside as though there was going to be a football cup final. I asked one of the policemen what was going on. He said, oh, we've got Tony Blair coming next week. 
is going to be a huge and, and angry... already doing it. Yes, and there's going to be a huge angry crowd. We've already heard of parents of, of dead soldiers who've kicked up a terrific fuss that they'd only allow 60 people in and they're drawing a ballot as though they were going to a bingo. I know, bingo I put the name in it. And, well, I think it's terrible that uh, the parents of a victim are going to be kept out. It's really pouring rain and having to hear about their, their son. I think people are really going to see how angry the country is at Blair because he's got away with murder since floating around the world, living in that hotel you and I know so well, the American colony good in food. Jerusalem. Very good swimming pool, excellent pool and food. And his gym moved up into his own private suite because he didn't like having to do his gym in front of other people. Well, there's a security uh, risk, of course. Uh, well, he's going to... Can I just go around the rest of the table, uh, Christopher, for that very objective view of, uh, of, of the former Prime Minister? Do we think that that is generally the view, I mean, not your views necessarily, that it let's get Blair, this is the opportunity? Michael? I think in a single word, yes. Um, um, That's quite good, a single word sometimes. <laughs> yeah. This is not the Today programme, you allowed them. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, 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 that, that's certainly um, the general perception, the man in the pub view would be, this is the opportunity, yes, to mm. get there. Um, I was making the point, uh, Alexander, that, uh, I mean, this is weeks ago on this programme, that uh, we bet on this programme that Tony Blair would choose to turn up at the same time as the Afghanistan summit in London. Yeah, you were right. And to, uh, to I don't mean to hide behind it, um, but to hide behind it. Uh, you think you think that's reasonable or, or that's cynical? Well, I think I think it was quite correct. I mean, the assumption, and I also think that the. Community... But that's the sort of I'm, what I'm really saying. That's the sort of emotions he arouses. No, but Tony Blair is like that. You know, he always hides behind someone. I mean, we've heard about it from Alistair Campbell. And suddenly we realized he was hiding behind him sometimes. But uh, the point is that uh, the members of the committee would be under pressure to ask him questions because it's one thing asking Jack Straw silly things and nobody really cares. Mm. But if you're going to ask Prime Minister, well, how were you feeling that day or what you, mm. were your feelings and so on, that wouldn't work. Yeah. And um, I think that it, it, it's, it's bound to be some spectacle. To well, be I tell you what, I, I had uh, I've applied I applied for the ballot. Yes. You see, hoping I wouldn't get it. I felt I should apply. Hoping I wouldn't get it because on the ballot, uh, if you get it, you're behind them and you're looking at the back of the head. All right. If you can watch it on the screen, you can see the face. And I right. think that is, you know, a bit of a childish sort of way of looking at it. Maybe I I'm like the see Yeah, I like the description. If anybody thinks anybody's going to be grilled at this inquiry, they're wrong. Lightly poached will be the yeah. most. Did you see anybody see? Look, we must move on because we got Jamie Gordon. We're going to give us a piece here. But um, did anybody see the FT cartoon this morning? It said that uh, um, um, was it uh, Tony Blair is very angry with uh, Gordon Brown for leading us into this inquiry. <laughs> good stuff. Oh, good. good stuff. Worth buying it today, as uh, ever. Um, i tell you who's not hiding. Um, as we probably noticed this week, our top admiral, the first sea lord, and our top soldier, chief of the general staff, have been brawling in public. Uh, not fisticuffs, but uh, verbally. Of course, it's all about being a Whitehall warrior, I suppose. Whether it cuts any political mustard is another matter. For those who have not heard the screams from Whitehall, here's Jamie Gordon. 
On Monday night, the boss of the army, General Sir David Richards, told the International Institute of Strategic Studies that he believes future conflicts, even between nations, would be more akin to the fighting seen in Afghanistan and Iraq than the traditional state-on-state concept of warfare. Ultimately, he believes this should mean the focus shifting to more specialist soldiers, unmanned drones and supporting transport aircraft. These wars are not being fought by conventional invasion of uniformed troops ready to be repulsed by heavy armour or ships, but through a combination of economic, cyber and proxy actions. General Richard's view is that less money should be spent on the big noisy items, such as large warships, tanks and fast jets. But he said when it comes to funding, it's not about the Army, Navy and RAF simply divvying up the pot. This is not, as is often suggested, a matter of where the balance of investment should lie between the three services. Rather, this is about ensuring we achieve a balance across all three and with allies between our ability to fight a traditional war of air, maritime and ground kinetic manoeuvre and being able to conduct a far more difficult one amongst and with and for the people. However, the following day, the first Sea Lord, Admiral Sir Mark Stanhope, countered with a broadside of his own. He said the Royal Navy contributed significantly to the business of defending Britain's interests across the globe and that expensive defence equipment, like the two aircraft carriers on order, were necessary despite the likelihood of a smaller MOD budget. And Admiral Stanhope also seemed to disagree with General Richard's view on the type of conflict we should be prepared for in the future. We need to ensure that we, as a nation, have the strategic flexibility to deal not just with Afghanistan, but also the broad range of other threats and challenges to our national interests today and in the future. It is important to realise that Afghanistan is not the only game in town, or indeed the only model for future engagement. Two of the three bosses have now pitched their case ahead of the Strategic Defence Review due after the election. It's thought the first Sea Lord and the head of the RAF both disagree with General Richard's vision of the future. So, step forward the last of the triumvirate, Air Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Dalton. Jamie Gordon reporting for CITREP. Thank you very much indeed. Michael Connors is your territory. What's going on? This is not a, a big row, is it? It is just... Let's get in there and mix it. Uh, I think this was very much an orchestrated debate. Actually, the two um, the two uh, presentations were advertised some time ago. It's not mm. something that was provoked, for instance, by Malcolm Chalmers in my institute's paper on uh, 25% reductions yeah. in manpower. This was happening before. And uh, um, I have heard that, that the, the two chiefs had met. Um, um, so there's something... Um, and and uh, they do uh, explore what the big debate is, to be <coughs> frank. I mean, on the one hand, it's sorting out the current problem, and on the other, it's looking to the future when there will be a reluctance for this country to embark in the present type of operation. That's not to say that land operations in the longer term will not be like Afghanistan, war amongst the peoples, whatever you want to call it. It's much more what the obligations will be, and the obligations in Afghanistan, as they were in Iraq, are very specific. Specific, and whether we would commit ourselves to that type of obligation in the longer term rather than one in a larger, uh, with a larger multinational consensus where we can do our bit and then move on, as we have done in Bosnia. Yes, yes. I, I thought, I, I wondered if uh, Admiral Stanhope was on thin ice when he was 
uh, citing the Falklands as something which surprised everybody, uh, and therefore you've got to have aircraft carriers, otherwise you wouldn't, I mean, effectively, say, otherwise you wouldn't have had aeroplanes down in the Falklands. You know, somebody's got to get up and say, right, name me ten possibilities, um, and that's the reason to keep, uh, keep the aircraft carriers. Well, um, I can sort of give you some. I, um, and for once, I, I am prepared to be a bit navalist in this. Um, when we're looking at defence policy, the defence review, the first thing we have to tackle is obligations. The obligations are to defence of the United Kingdom, obviously. But then we have to look at the overseas territories. And uh, we are an archipelago that spans the world. And al- although it's very difficult perhaps to see specific scenarios relating to Tristan, de Kuna or whatever, um, there is the question at the moment, of Haiti and uh, she doesn't belong to us um, and never mm. did but just around the corner you've <laughs> the got French Grand... will be here you've... glad to hear you say that yeah. <laughs> just around the corner you've got um, Grand Cayman this is a colony it's part of our sovereign territory and Kirks and Cake is not far away mm-hmm. and um, how you deal with these obligations and the other important obligation is evacuation of non-competence we're a big enough nation to get our own civilians out of uh, crises around the world Uh, And when you start to look at the sorts of capabilities you need for that, then it tends to be naval. And carriers are not big warfighting instruments. They're instruments of diplomacy. They're instruments of dealing with uh, the unexpected, uh, all of these things. And Admiral um, Mark is absolutely right in that way. And the RAF uh, need the carriers as well? Uh, The RAF... um, uh, might have needed the carriers if uh, different decisions were made over who flies the Joint Strike yes. Fighter. Yes. Um, they, the carriers don't just carry fixed wing, and we've seen that with the Carl Vinson off Haiti, mm. where there are no fixed wing there, there's just lots of other stuff on this huge deck, and that huge deck was the deck where the first aircraft were launched into Afghanistan, as I remember. Yeah. So they do lots of different things. Yes. <laughs> um, Alexander Nekrasov, tell me, um, the, this debate that we heard, I mean, I thought that, the, I mean, both the general and the admiral, good stuff, everybody reported it, but they reported it as a punch-up, um, and it was all over what sort of war you're going to have and, and, and get rid of the carriers and it's all going to be um, soldiers. That is the difficulty, isn't it? Is that the debate really is much deeper, but most people will not be able to absorb that. Well, I must tell you, the Russian, uh, you know, they're, they're monitoring this debate because it's interesting for them. They are going to do a reform of their armed forces. And their position is that this debate is driven by lack of funds and not by strategy. Because both, all the commanders are under pressure to cut. So strategy takes a back seat. You have to come up with some miracle, basically, to explain why your 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 um, armed forces are needed in this point and i think it's in a sense it's a sorry sight because they are pressed by money considerations mm. not by the real strategy and the russians picked that up and i was quite surprised mm. um christopher as, mm. as, as somebody who reports um has done for donkeys well a few years anyway um, um uh, international politics mm. It's the same the world over, isn't it? Even in the United States where they've got, I don't know how many, how many have they got, Michael? 13 carriers, 12 carriers? It's that sort of big. That yes. means you've got carrier battle groups. Yes. It's that bigger thing, but it's still money, etc. 
Yes, and I think, you know, ever since we had the global crisis and the collapse of Lehman Brothers on Wall Street, this debate has been looming. I totally agree with Alexander that it's really rather shabby, that it's really just about uh, money and not about proper strategy. And I think behind it uh, is the fact that there is, I think, a growing reality with what's going to come. Whoever wins the May election, there's going to be some most shocking uh, cuts. I mean, the most interesting news wasn't that argument, I don't think, but today's news that while uh, we're fighting on the ground in Afghanistan, the Foreign Office has been cutting. Baroness... Uh, uh, it was leaked by Baroness Kinnock, mm. uh, the Minister of State uh, at, the for- okay. at the Foreign Office, that uh, we've been doing this... I mean, what what is the point fighting these poor guys who are, you know, fighting to gain a few yards in a dusty village and then they, they're pulling out all the money that was trying to stop the well, radicals. It's, 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 uh, it's cutting money. the budget, which what is largely the Pakistan There is no money, answer. I think, actually, behind it all, if we really knew the secrets, what they're heading towards is cutting Trident. They can't afford it. They just can't Michael? afford it. Michael? Well, if... Because um, the is... decision has been taken to... Keep going with the uh, with uh, with the deterrent, isn't it? Well, to replace the submarines that will, which which we need to do in the early twenties if we're going ahead, um, keeping the trident going. Um, the the final decision hasn't been taken. The decision has been taken to uh, do uh, the um, early assessments. The big money gets spent um, at what they call main gates. Main gate will be. Um, a, around about 2014 and that's when you'll be paying uh, the sort of 75 to 80% of what um, has so to be spent. So we can get out of it for the next three years or so? <laughs> well, the present government's committed. It's unlikely that a Tory government's going to um, revoke that. They may but try... suppose and... it's a hung parliament with the Liberals... A hung parliament, it will be very interesting because then the Liberals would have to make a clear decision amongst yeah. themselves where there are differences of views as to where they're going to go, uh, how long a hung parliament will remain and, 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 and whatever. But it could be that the, the, the final decision for Maingate will not take place until uh, the next parliament after this one, in which case, mm. um, because there could be some... Uh, extension of the main gate date, or it could be spread out a bit. Um, and so uh, the, the, this may not be final, no. I think this main gate sounds like a Sarah Palin sort of expression <laughs> from somewhere, but it is bigger than I know. Um, I'll tell you something. Uh, today, I think they're due to arrive today, is a Nate Strong uh, RMP protection team arriving in Haiti today. Uh, they're there to provide better security for the uh, Foreign Office's consular uh, uh, rapid deployment team. Excellent stuff. But the MOD announced yesterday that the RFA Largs Bay will be sailing from Marchwood by the end of the month. That's very good as well. But why wasn't the Navy already there? What happened to the Atlantic Patrol Task Brackets North Brackets? I think we used to call it the West Indies Guardship. Uh, on the line, the editor of British Warships and Auxiliaries is, uh, is, is Steve Bush. Uh, Steve, I, I thought we always kept a, um, a destroyer or frigate around there. We, we have historically we have, but uh, it's it's the old dwindling budgets and declining ship numbers. I'm afraid we just haven't got enough to go around. Well, I mean, where is it? I mean, the the, the vessel that should have been there. Do you know? It's uh, the last ship that was there, Iron Duke, is now back alongside in Portsmouth. Right now, I seem to remember uh, Navy PR uh, giving us a lot of stuff about um, 
whatever he was then, I think, uh, Lieutenant Wales, wasn't he, in Iron Duke? And, he was, yep. and And recovering or, or knocking out drug barons and things in, in, in that very part of the world. Yep. It's, it's, it's all about managed risk now. And uh, can we afford to pull the ship out and not cause ourselves too much damage? And it, it's deemed that on the West Indies Patrol, we man it for the hurricane season. And we can, without too much risk, pull it away when there's not the hurricane season. Been Ta- caught short this time with Haiti, of course. Tell me something. Um, I mean, I don't know how it affects the operation in Haiti. Um, is it the Navy itself, though? Uh, must say, listen, that's another job we really ought to be doing because it is an important job. You take a ship and it's it's like taking a small generating station, isn't it? And a... oh, oh, yeah, it's, it's a job they're, they're ideally placed to do. I mean, you, you generate electricity, you've got your own fresh water, you've got a base... Which you can make. From. You yep. can make fresh water, yeah. And uh, you don't have to rely on the infrastructure for getting around. You've got your helicopter to go exactly where you need. I wonder if there is another aspect of this, uh, and that when it comes to the um, the naval debate, then we were talking, if you heard earlier, about um, the first sea lord sort of saying we still need a, a wide-flung navy or a navy that can be flung wide anyway. This is the sort of thing that we ought to be making a big thing of because, after all, what is a rapid re- an army rapid reaction um, organization, a core even uh, largely to do, quite often humanitarian operations, and that's part of a military role, isn't it? It, it, it is indeed, and uh, as, as, you, as you've said, the aircraft carrier that is now off Haiti is a floating city providing everything that's needed. Um, it's an ideal platform to put down there. Largs Bay, which is going there now, will be an ideal platform to have off the shore. But if you haven't got enough ships to go around, you've got to decide which commitments you're going to do and which commitments you're going to have to drop. Mm. And we've got to that stage now where there aren't enough ships to cover every commitment. Tell me about the latest edition of, um, of Warships and Auxiliaries. Um, does that reflect, or are you reflecting in, the, uh, in this year's uh, edition, the, the, the smaller navy, the, the more vulnerable navy? Yes. I mean, outwardly, the, the navy is in good shape. There's aircraft carriers being built, there's destroyers being built. But they're all being built in smaller numbers, and the government have got this flawed argument that because the new ships are very more, much more capable, you don't need as many. Well, if you haven't got as many, you can only have them in one place at a time. And as the West Indies is showing now, we've been caught short because we haven't got a ship that can cover that, that uh, commitment. Okay, where can we get a copy? Uh, www.navybooks.com. Navybooks.com. Yeah. It's all in there all on there. Okay, Steve, Steve Bush, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Um, I, I just wonder, um, seize on this sort of thing, because you say, ah, oh, where's the Navy? But the truth is, Michael, uh, uh, the Americans are handling it pretty well. We don't actually need to be there, do we? Well, we have to uh, say... Um uh, it's, it's Haiti, um, uh, and it's not it's, ours. It's not ours. Uh, so what we're missing is not so much a responsibility to be there, although obviously there is the um, the humanitarian responsibility. If one can do something, can mm. do something. It's more the perception that we can't take advantage of uh, humanitarian action, which would. Um, contribute to our status internationally. We perceive ourselves to be considered internationally, and it strengthens our, 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 our global power, if you want to put it, that we do these things and we can't hear. I mean, the question would be if it wasn't Haiti, as I say, if it was Grand Cayman yeah. or something equally tragic happened there, um, that uh, we would then be very much um, caught short. Yeah, somebody rang me the other day from uh, Antigua and said, 
uh, I'm watching, I can see the volcano on, going up on uh, Montserrat, just over the way. And I thought to myself, yeah, if, if, if you've only got a, co- a couple of the uh, things like that going, and where's the guard ship? And uh, although um, many of the Caribbean um, nations uh, are in the Commonwealth, but they don't belong to us, um, nonetheless, we would expect to be the first call. Um, Of course, from the American point of view, there is the Monroe Doctrine, and if it's Haiti, it lies in their area, just as the way they behave with um, the Grenada problem in um, Margaret Thatcher's. Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. We'll let you know. I think also it's doing, I mean, immeasurable good at the time that the American reputation is not so hot in some parts of the world to see that hospital ship arrive yesterday off the coast with this magnificent operating theatre I mean it was just a a wonderfully uplifting sight I'm sure people all over the world felt that instead of seeing Americans you know sort of tossing bombs around in Afghanistan and Iraq here was uh, them getting a really a sensational bit of I don't I know they're not doing it for PR and I'm not saying they are but, but it they, did look good you couldn't help yeah. but feel it yourself yeah. I mean and very important military capacity and, and which ships can provide, particularly ships like carriers, but, um, but warships generally, is providing the command, the control, the management, the organisation very early on indeed when there's absolutely nothing. And that's what the military is good at doing, uh, creating a, an organisational structure out of absolutely nothing when uh, there is very little knowledge as to what the situation yes, is. Yes, after all, when they're not doing it for the real, they're exercising for real, aren't they? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And um, there are many examples of hu- uh, hurricanes um, where that's what's happened. They've been there to help the yeah. the uh, Prime Minister. But it, it, it is the only control. relief operation that I ever remember where we, there they have so many troops to stop looting that you start thinking... How many gangsters are there well, in Haiti? Yes. Because, well, 3,000 I mean, got out of prison. No, yes. but I mean 10,000 have been already sent. There's another no, no, 3,000 gangsters got oh, out right. of prison. Yes, they, but, uh, but, but 10,000 are already there. Well, don't forget, don't mm. forget that I mean, there's, there's, all been a, there's a long time been a, a UN and relief operation there and the, and the aid workers in, without, a, um, mm. without a, 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 a disruption like this, in peacetime, if you like to call it that, they were always getting kidnapped. Mm. And it's a big kidnap thing going on. It's, yes, it's like a landsai version yeah. of Somalia going on. So they've always been protected. Mm. And it was interesting seeing people digging, uh, being, uh, doing the digging, and a guard force standing with their backs to them, looking at the crowd. Mm. Listen, I want to talk about next week, because this time next week, <laughs> world leaders will be here in London for a conference on what to do next in Afghanistan, or what are we expected to do? On the line from Washington, D.C., the AFPAC analyst, Dr. Karen von Hippel at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. Um, Karen, summits are supposed to be gold pen affairs, aren't they? That means leaders have already worked out what's going to happen. That's so for London? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the main uh, decisions that's already been made is to train about 100,000 more security forces, so there'll be um, an increase from about 100,000 Afghan National Army to about 170, and for the police, from 94 to about 134,000. So a lot of the discussion will be about how to fund it um, and how to coordinate that funding. And by the way, um, we've jettisoned the term AFPAC now in the United States. We have. States, just so you know. That's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Sarah Payne is doing, obviously. Pakistanis. Sorry? It upset the Pakistanis too much, so Holbrook finally agreed to jettison it. <laughs> right, right, and it didn't have upset the uh, uh, Afghans, yes. Um, tell me something else about this 
this this whole sort of idea of a conference um is it necessary i mean when you consider well, who is calling the shots there yeah i mean i think you know the ideal version would have been the first meeting held in kabul rather than london i think that's what everybody wanted but then gordon brown called the meeting and i think people are trying to show solidarity there's a lot to do and a lot to commit to doing um we don't have a full cabinet yet in in kabul there going to have to try to figure out how to work with what they have. They'll probably appoint the current British ambassador to Afghanistan as the new NATO civilian rep and probably give him more power than he than the current person has. The current guy is an Italian named Fernando Gentilini, and so I think uh, Mark Sedwell will probably get that new job with expanded power so he could coordinate uh, the NATO side of the coin, the civilian side, much closer with the U.S. military and the U.N. effort. Yeah, I mean, it's the sort of job like uh, um, that Paddy Ashdown had in the, in the Balkans, isn't it? Well, not really, because there's still going to be the head of the UN mission who will be in charge of the international, general international development and other donor coordination. So I think with Paddy, what they wanted when he was being considered for Afghanistan was to triple have him, to have him in charge of UN, NATO, and EU. Um, I think that still is the best idea, really, because you still have too many chiefs out there um, and way too many actors doing too many things that aren't coordinated well enough. So the fewer bosses, the better, in my view. Is he, in the United States, is the, um, is, the, is the feeling that President Hamid Karzai is the best president they've got? I think they're just being very pragmatic. They're going to work with him. He's the person in charge now. They're going to figure out how to do it. There are still chances of putting in um, some of the technocrats like Ashra Afghani or Ali Jalali, the former um, interior minister. I think that there's still chances of putting in some of these uh, respected Afghans. Some sometimes are considered expatriates, sometimes not. But they still haven't finalized a lot of the lists. They may have some super ministries um, that are in charge of four or five ministries. They may have a, a chief executive in place. So there's still some things that are up in the air. Um, the shootout this week in Kabul doesn't really help any claims that the Afghan forces can provide any sort of security, really. Yeah, no, they're, they're very far away from that. They've got problems, high attrition rates. They've got drug problems. Um, so, yeah, they're still a long way from being able to provide security. That being said, I think the Army is still uh, one of the most respected domestic institutions in the country and has certainly made a lot of progress. Tell me what, um, if, if, you, if you saw something at the end of it and say, gosh, I didn't know they'd get that far, would it be money? No, because I, I don't think we're going to have any huge surprises. I think we know that they will get the money. Um, they're going to also talk about Yemen, too, so it's not just Afghanistan now um, at this meeting. But, um, I, you know, I just think to try to really cement international resolve, try to get the international players as focused as possible on, on coordinating their efforts, which has been a problem the whole time. So I think, you know, it's, it's a process more than anything. Yeah. Uh, Karen Van Hippel, thank you very much indeed. Hope to speak to you later. Um, I tell you, last week, um, Alexander, we were saying that Ukraine's President uh, Viktor uh, Yushchenko would be knocked out of the Ukrainian election on Sunday. He was. He was, yes. he, In a big way, wasn't yes, he? Yes, huge. In a big way. Um, what happens now? There's a runoff between the two runners up. Well, it got very dirty immediately. The moment that we've got those two um, left, 
Yulia Tymoshenko, who, who she was the one of the braids, the blonde yes, braids. Yes, yes, um, uh, and uh, she w really wants the job. Um, and the other is Viktor uh, Yanukovych, who is a, so seen as a pro-Moscow candidate. But um, Yanukovych understands that he has to sort of move a bit away from <coughs> Moscow in order to get the votes. So he's starting to say things like, well, I don't know, I don't know, NATO is not that bad, really, if you think about really? it. But, but n n not all the time, but, you know, he's starting to play that game. And also, they're both accusing each other of corruption. And, is that true? Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> Come on. You need a minute, well, well, of course it is. And um, yes. you see, Mr. Inokovic um, spent some time in prison for certain things, and he said... What I, certain things? I, I, he said, I, I'm I, I was young then. I, <laughs> oh, this was some time I made, ago. I made mistakes, and uh, it was something to do with burglary and so on. And um, uh, mm. His mistake uh, as, court, as, rega yeah. as regards Miss <laughs> um, Timoshenko, well, she is actually being accused of having a fortune of 7 billion. Which really? she, From what? Uh, guess I thought everybody in the Ukraine was poor. <laughs> yes, well, not her. And... Uh, uh, there, there seems to have been some sort of a public uh, television discussion about that. And she came on it and said, look, I'm going to tell you here and now, it's not, it's not true. All the money is with my former husband. Really? <laughs> no, it was very funny, actually. And uh, <laughs> Sounds the people great. in Ukraine are saying, uh, the ones I've spoken to, because I'm monitoring it just, just for the fun of it and for our website, to be honest, and they're saying to me, the, 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 the horrible thing about it all is that there are two people, both from the old guard, whom we both don't want, <laughs> and there is no choice, basically. And I said, well, welcome to the real world. It's yeah. like in America. But uh, the Prime Minister in Russia, Mr. Uh, Putin, he must be rather pleased with what's happening. Well, uh, They're sending a, an ambassador, which I thought they decided to send ages ago, apparently not. Yes, but, you know, it, it was he didn't really want to go. That's the problem, the ambassador. And the point is, of course, that Mr. Putin is saying, well, you see, I've been doing another diplomatic games, and we, we ousted that disgusting man, Yushinka, who didn't like us. But unfortunately for him, um, it might turn out even worse than before. This woman is unpredictable, and... Um, if she wins, and she might, because she's, she's got the muscle, mm. uh, then I don't really know whether it will be, you know, without rough rides anymore. I don't okay. know, I don't know. <laughs> listen, listen, you're listening to uh, Sit Rep from BFBS Radio 2. I'm Christopher Lee. Uh, it's now three quarters to uh, past the hour. If you've missed anything so far, just go to bfbs.com forward slash sit rep and listen again or podcast here on uh, BFBS Radio 2. With me at the Sit Rep Roundtable, Michael Codner, Christopher Walker, and just listening to Alexander Nekrasov. Um... SITREP Overheard is, is a sort of part of the programme when we think about the margins, uh, just outside the margins of the major news stories. This week, we want to start with President Obama. First year in office this week, uh, a little uh, local difficulty in Massachusetts with elections. Still with us, Dr. Karen von Hippel in Washington, D.C. and at the University of Southern Utah, where he is Professor of Politics, Michael Stathis. Karen, um, in your area, security, counterterrorism, etc., um, has the president had a good year? Well, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's still too early in a sense to say. I mean, of course, we had the, the failed December attack. He, uh, Obama was very upset about it. He came out and said that, that U.S. intelligence had failed. He's pushing for more reforms. Um, you know, it's, we have 16 intelligence agencies in the United States, and so 
trying to harmonize and make sure information gets to the right place when most of the information is, of course, top secret and tightly held. There are huge challenges um, to reforming these agencies. So I think there's going to be a lot of pressure now to really uh, push in, in that direction. Of course, there's a lot of concern about now uh, American Muslims or, or, or converts uh, starting to turn to terrorism. They hadn't worried about that before. There was some complacency saying that, you know, American Muslims are more middle class and more integrated, and now we're seeing uh, with several different communities in the United States that there may be more of a threat than we thought before. So I think, you know, he's had so many challenges on his plate with the economy, with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, with health care. You know, there's so much going on right now, that, um, but that this will become another priority. Right. Um um, Michael Stathis, um, I suppose like all first-year presidents, um, um, President Obama, I mean, there's, there's no practice, is there? He's had little time to learn how to be a president. No, he had to hit the ground running. The um, house uh, uh, of disarray that was left to him uh, was uh, uh, unprecedented and... Um, uh, uh, much to do, and the expectations, uh, the hope, if we, if we don't overuse that word, uh, was really uh, quite unreasonable. Um, but to his credit, uh, he, uh, he has attempted, I think, to uh, you know, tackle as many things as he possibly can. And um, one thing different than some of his predecessors, he's, he's tried to avoid conversations where uh, he gets caught up in blaming uh, people that came before him immediately. Yeah, it would be easy to do so, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Tommy, um, the thing that people have been discussing today, of course, was the um, the election in Massachusetts when uh, a very, very safe uh, uh, Democrat seat uh, in the Senate, uh, 57 years the Kennedys had held that or something like that, I can't remember now, but uh, he lost it. He lost it to... Um, uh, Scott Brown, who, whose, whose main slogan as a Republican, which surprised me, was, I drive a truck. Um, <laughs> not only do I drive a truck, I've got 200,000 miles on the clock. Now, how did they lose it, Michael? Well, it, it, we're still trying to figure that out. And uh, he is a very amiable fellow uh, uh, and uh, very handsome, I would say uh, uh, charismatic. He ran a very, very good campaign. In fact, uh, it's interesting to note that much of that, uh, I think, can be credited uh, to his wife, uh, who is a, uh, a television anchor woman for a local new, uh, news channel. And she's, uh, she's also, uh, uh, you know, very, very good. Ran a a very, very, very credible campaign. Now, on the other hand, uh, the Democratic opponent uh, did not um, uh, ran can, kind of a haphazard campaign. She was not all that well known, and um, she was I, the Attorney I, I, General, wasn't she, of the state? Yes, um, but uh, oh, uh, state Attorney Generals can you know sometimes be a little uh, a, a little obscure. They and, do get um, to the White House, as the last one showed. It, it can do. It can do. But uh, she. He made some major, major PR uh, gaffes. Uh, a couple of them had to do with American baseball, and I know the international audience will, uh, you know, uh, raise an eyebrow at this. This is important in uh, downtown Sox. Boston. <laughs> it's, it's a big deal. Yeah, 
Yeah, didn't you see that something like Kurt Schilling of the Boston Red Sox? I mean, uh, was in fact loved the Yankees or something like that. Well, she something she, like she, that. Former picture of uh, being a Yankees fan. She disparaged uh, Fenway Park. Uh, now, I am not a Red Sox fan. I've been a Dodger fan since uh, the, uh, uh, the the days in Brooklyn, but um, mm-hmm. uh, still. I, I understand uh, Red Sox fans, and uh, 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 they tend to mix their politics and their sports very seriously. Right, Karen, uh, I mean, <laughs> having some fun there with... Um, but does it matter? Is it one of those things that just... It's going to be far more difficult in the Senate, obviously. Um, but does it actually matter in the, in, in the four years of the presidency? Oh, it matters enormously. I mean, this will interfere with so many uh, parts of his agenda that he really wanted to push through, not just health care, but, um, uh, you know, uh, global warming issues, you know, arms control issues. So they're going to have to work much harder now to get consensus, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, it's you know, the Republicans could easily block a lot of reforms if they wanted to now. Um, hopefully they won't, because hopefully they don't want to be seen as obstructionists. Okay. Karen, thank you very much indeed. Michael, just a final thought. Um, It's Obama's first year. It's also Hillary Rodham Clinton's first year as Secretary of State. I mean, internationally, she's been quite a hit. She has uh, been around, uh, and she has been well-received around the world. And uh, it's very interesting that um, uh, in uh, public opinion polls, um, uh, Hillary Clinton has gotten very high numbers uh, uh, in the United States. And, of course, uh, she's been received very well abroad, uh, you know, as well. Now, um, I I guess on the downside, uh, there might be arguments that uh, uh, in terms of practical uh, outcomes or results, uh, we're not seeing an awful lot of things yet. But uh, um, as recently as the the, the last week, former National Security Advisor uh, uh, Brzezinski uh, uh, declared that both uh, Hillary Clinton and the president uh, have done uh, remarkably well uh, in terms of redirecting American goals and reconnecting uh, with the the global community. And uh, this, this is a good report card for the first year. Right. Michael Stasis, thank you very thank much you. indeed. Um, Michael Codner, this thing about President um, Obama, if we think, some people think, well, why are we spending so much time on it? He's He's not, but he's our president, isn't he? I mean, he says something. We, as we've been listening in Chilcot, in the Iraq inquiry, we have to very, very seriously think what we do about our number one ally. Uh, absolutely, um, and this is a major issue, I think, for... Um, it should be a major issue for the election. It won't be, but it should be. It certainly is for the defence review that follows this, and, th- and that is um, the significance of uh, our relationship with the United States um, and um, the extent to which we need to sustain this and the extent to which this, uh, this our defence contribution is relevant to that. A lot of the issues are ones of perception, perhaps, rather than fact, in particular, to what extent we've ever influenced the Americans in recent history. Mm. But certainly a, a, a sound discourse between a prime minister and a president who respect one another is at least uh, a step. I'm not sure that that was the situation between Blair and Bush, I don't know. But um, we're not really seeing um, revivals of Macmillan and Kennedy or Churchill and Roosevelt, um, uh, certainly until recently. And it'll be interesting to see how that takes off. Christopher Walker, somebody who's worked as the bureau chief in Washington, 
It does matter, doesn't it? I mean, somebody said, uh, showed me some figures once and showed that uh, more people watch the American presidential election night mm. than watch the British general election night. Yes, and it matters enormously. I've been monitoring the anniversary uh, in the Middle East and really uh, the change of tone there, the Arabs are so disappointed. They've been sort of led up the garden path with this speech in Cairo and this great sort of oratory about friendship, but nothing has been resolved. And the funny thing is he's managed to... To upset the Palestinians and the hardline Israelis. <clears throat> the hardline Israelis were upset because he said to start with that he was going to stop settlements. Then he had a Thatcher-type, well, a non-Thatcher-type U-turn. Said, no, no, you can go on building in East Jerusalem and you can go on expanding the existing settlements. So he upset the Palestinians who've walked out and aren't going to talk. And uh, we've got absolutely nowhere. Nowhere with Iran, no, no solution of the atom, uh, nuclear problem there. Nowhere with Syria. Nowhere with anywhere. Right. Alexander, um, it, it strikes me when you're talking about uh, Mr Blair and the, how people are going for him. Uh, uh, Mr Obama's got the lowest ratings any first-year president's ever had. Um, we're full of disappointments to come to leaders. I don't know. Do we, do we don't get very good leaders, do we? Well, it's the time, you see, after the Cold War ended, there were no strong leaders anymore because there was no perception of a real threat. You've got Putin. Well, especially when he's stripped down <laughs> to the waist. Well, yes, but he's a prime minister, so technically he's Oh, not, is he? He's oh, not, sorry, I forgot. He's not he's the a... leader, you see. <laughs> and after, if you notice, after the Cold War, we don't really have anybody, you know, who is strong. We don't really need them, technically speaking, because there is no danger there. But didn't we think Obama was going to be strong when we heard him? People were sort of... These expectations during his campaign and just after were enormous. I mean, that's been part of his problem. Yeah, but the, the expectations were, you know, sort of about social change. But uh, I don't think that yes. anybody was expecting much on Where the, the, I mean, the foreign the, stage. I mean, the, the, the big leaders, Michael, you were mentioning sort of uh, Isa, uh, Macmillan. Now, people, most people weren't around when Macmillan was a leader. He was a great man, wasn't he? Whatever you thought of his politics... And he's, as a personal, he was a great man. And when he strode on the, on the stage, he was a great man. Do we have those great men now? He, he certainly gave that perception, yes. yes. Do we have soundbite men now? I don't know. Do we? I mean, we didn't have in those days. He's, he's did make great speeches, but now... Some... I, I think the jury is still out with Obama. I mean, the, the problem for an American president in particular, but any president of a democracy or prime minister, uh, is that they have to show returns very early in their time. And the issues here of sorting things out, of, of, of achieving some stability and internationalising uh, the problems of Iran everywhere else, which is certainly what... Europe was hoping that he would do. He's certainly done that in his mm. approach. But from the American public's point of view, this is perceived um, as weakness yeah. and lack of, of decision, mm. whereas you could say this is exactly the right way to go. It just doesn't match the political demands uh, of the situation. I tell, you, I tell you, it's interesting, isn't it, that the, perhaps the two great leaders that we can think about, or, the, or ones that are instantly recognisable... Churchill? No, I mean, alive today. Oh. Obama still, obviously. I, I think so, yeah. Obama... And Nelson Mandela. And that is about it, isn't it? And Nicolas Sarkozy? He's done a lot. Sorted out the Georgia thing. Always around. Prettiest yeah. wife in the world. But big problems at home. <laughs> yes, big that's problems. true. Yeah. Um, Not yeah. very popular, by the way, in France. So. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, isn't that right, though? I mean, if you wanted yeah. an international guy, mm. the way that we apparently had them, when the world was much slower, mm. 
Well, think... George Clooney, then. I mean, you know, he's probably the most popular. George Clooney. No, actually, Angela Merkel is doomed, is she? I mean, you know, she's... Uh, yeah, I mean, what, Merkel, also think, come on, walk so, out of the studio. Uh, Hillary, and who, Hillary Clinton's not finished yet. And also her husband. Uh, of course, if we really want to talk about big... Yes. Stop smirking. If you want to talk about big people... The big names. Uh, yeah. Sarah Palin, of yes. course. Um, the Fast Eddie Sitrep Award for the finest Sarah Palin quotes of the year. Um, we've had another entry. It's from um, P.O. Graham. I'm not sure if that's Philip or Philippa Olive or Olivier, Olivier or maybe Petty Officer Graham. But anyway, Petty Officer Graham is this. Ready? A gerbil's no stoat. <laughs> I mean, anybody got one? I, I've got one. It's, it's along roughly the same lines. Uh, the, a cockerel that doesn't crow ain't no rooster. This is this is pure Sarah pure Palin. Alaskan folklore. Yeah, I yeah. mean, these things have an advantage. They actually mean something, don't they? Go on. Yeah, they mean something. Somebody support me on this. Well, they it means mean... she's trying to say that you've got to be top dog. Yeah. Otherwise, it's no good. And that's why she talked about the Palin-McCain presidency that was coming and not the McCain-Palin. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. We go back to the original one. Um, unless you're the front husky, the view's always the same. And it's the same sort of good old Alaskan folklore. Mm -hmm. I, thought, I thought the original one was the difference between a, a pit bull terrier and a hockey mum. Uh, hockey mum is what? Lipstick. It's lipstick, mm -hmm. yeah. These are Serapalinisms. The, um, yeah? Huge intellect she has. I mean, you know, it's just... <laughs> Only a dead fish goes with the flow. <laughs> that's, that's rather nice one. Right. Only a dead fish. No, yeah. we, are, we are going this we week a gerbil... Gather a book. Hang on, a gerbil ain't a stoat. That's it for this week. My thanks to Michael Codner, Alexander Nekrasov, and for Christopher Walker. Um, we'll be back next week, same time. Until then, I'm still Christopher Lee, and Mary, Mary's still in the hut. With Christopher Lee.